Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from ABV through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs, Season 3. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. It's great to be back for another season. This is our first of six episodes that'll roll out in the coming months. For those of you who are new to this podcast, I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, Nova Scotia, full-time academic now, so that is a change. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside your centre. This podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of this series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from expert dermatologists across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. And one of those experts is Dr. Jeff Donovan. Dr. Donovan specializes in the diagnosis and management of common, uncommon, and rare reasons for hair loss at his practice, Donovan Medical, in Whistler, BC, and Vancouver. He's also the president of the Canadian Hair Loss Foundation and a faculty member in the dermatology department at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Donovan, welcome to Dermalogs. Thank you so much, Carrie. It's really great to be here. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be able to join you on this new season. Oh, it's great. And you know what? I've been wanting to do an episode on hair for quite some time because I have to admit, I think that this is one of the big areas um, where a lot of us have a little bit of deficiency, even those of us in practice. And so, you know, you always think dermatology uh, specialty in skin, hair and nails. Um, but occasionally I have to admit my my hair knowledge gets a little um, less than sharp. So I'm really happy to be able to talk about some hair topics today. Great. Um, I wanted to cover two sort of main areas that I feel to be a real challenge in clinical practice, and the residents uh, have told me the same. And so I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about one of the non-scarring alopecias, androgenetic alopecia, but I would also like to loop back and then talk about a scarring alopecia, frontal fibrosing alopecia. So if that's okay with you, I think those would be two really good topics to cover. Sounds great. These these are good topics and uh, common things that we see. I mean, androgenetic is so common, but gee, we're seeing a lot of frontal fibrosing now. And that's the thing that made me want to talk about it because I thought, you know, it seems that over the past decade of my practice, I've been seeing more and more consults for hair and in particular that frontal hair loss. Um, but maybe let's talk about that common one first. So Let's talk about androgenetic alopecia. Uh, and I know, you know, there's different considerations, whether we're looking at a male patient or female, but maybe I find the most challenging in terms of the diagnostic part is female. So maybe you could just walk us through, you know, you see a patient, they come in, you see patterned hair loss, like how do you approach that? Yeah, so there's a lot of mimickers of female androgenetic hair loss. So I think whenever someone comes through the door, you really want to make sure that you're not dealing with one of those mimickers. And so you really want to start with a history. And androgenetic hair loss can start anywhere from age 8, 10, 12. That's not common. It usually starts 20s, 30s, 40s. But when it starts, it starts with a very confusing picture. Mm -hmm. And that is hair shedding. And so androgenetic hair loss is commonly misdiagnosed as telogen effluvium because the early stages of androgenetic hair loss is hair shedding. Mm-hmm. And so you have a patient who comes in with hair shedding. And so you want to, you know, obtain that kind of information. Is it a little bit of shedding? Is it a lot of shedding? Is it sudden onset? Are there symptoms like itching, burning, or pain? Usually androgenetic hair loss does not have those. And so as you think about the history, you want to have this sort of slow onset, not many symptoms. The pattern of hair loss can be confusing, and it's important not to let that confuse you. Patients will convince you 
that it's diffuse. Mm-hmm. My hair loss is diffuse, and many women are right. It is diffuse. Um, but the temptation is to think, okay, it's classic telogen and effluvium. It's diffuse. They're shedding. Um, their ferritin's 21. I think I have a classic telogen effluvium from low iron when, in fact, the patient in front of you has androgenetic hair loss. So you really want to spend time with the history and make, make sure the history makes sense. I'll often say to a patient before I examine the scalp, I'd like you to show me with one finger where you think the thinnest area of your scalp is. If the patient really can't tell me, they feel like, you know what, it's it's all over, it's equal. Well, well that's helpful. That, that really is diffuse loss, and you really got to think carefully about telogen effluvium, diffuse alopecia areata, and all these other mimickers. But if a patient says, you know, the, the frontal scalp, the mid-scalp, this is where it's the thinnest. When I look in the mirror, my part is wider. You know, it looks looks thinner under the light. Um, you know, those are really important historical features. So the history is really important. And then, you know, when you examine the scalp, you, you really want to spend time looking at the front of the scalp and the mid-scalp and comparing it to the back. So you mm-hmm. part it down the middle, and then you part it down the middle at the back, and you ask yourself, do I see more scalp when I part it down the middle in the front than when I part it down the middle in the back? And so without a dermatoscope, you really want to ask yourself, do I think there's less hair in the front mm-hmm. than the back? And, you know, if you spend that time, often even without a dermatoscope, you can convince yourself it's thinner. It's thinner in the front. And, and that's the, one of the key characteristics of, of women, female pattern hair loss. And then, of course, the dermatoscope allows you to see that miniaturization. Okay, so I wanted to loop back. So you did mention shedding, and I think that's one of the clinical uh, features that I also find challenging. So do you think that in those cases, does a hair pull test, A, help you at all? And if so, does it help you to differentiate telogen effluvium from androgenetic alopecia? Or could you get a positive hair pull test in both of those conditions early on? You know, classically speaking, the hair pull test may be positive in the front of the scalp or the mid-scalp and androgenetic hair loss, but negative in the back, mm-hmm. whereas in telogen effluvium, it should be positive all over. I'm not a great fan of the hair pull test. Okay. Um, you know, it can be negative, and yet a patient has a shedding abnormality. Um, I I do think that if it is positive, that's helpful, especially if it's you know significantly positive in many areas of the scalp. That's really suggestive of a telogen effluvium. But you know, classically, androgenetic hair loss is positive on the pull test in the mid scalp. But I don't really rely on the pull test myself when really ruling in or ruling out you know androgenetic hair loss. Okay. And also, how do you, I'm sure this happens to you because it happens to me all the time and and you're the sort of the hair guru. Um, When patients bring in their hair, um, you know, whether it's like bagged up in a ball or in their pocket or they just like try to show it to you um, and they're saying, you know, no, you don't understand. I lose so much in the shower. You know, with that piece of history, how do you tend to, you know, prevent the patient from perseverating on that? Because it, it feels to me like they're always really trying to impress upon me exactly how much hair they're losing. And I'm like, I, I get it. Yes. And um, what, how do you, what do you do with that? Yeah. So first, if a patient brings in a bag of hair, I always look at it. <laughs> and I always look at it. I always open it. I use my dermatoscope. I check to see if there's broken hairs there. I check to see what kind of hairs are there. Um, and so, you know, I, I give the patient that courtesy to see what, what did they bring in? Right. Um, 
I try to get a sense of, do you have any sense of what the shedding used to be like six months ago, one year ago, two years ago? And so some patients are afraid to tell you, but they've been counting and bagging hairs for 14 years. Right. And, you know, if a patient gives that kind of history and says the bags two years ago used to be, you know, very small, and now they're massive bags, you know, that's helpful because that really suggests there's a massive change. It really is about the timing of things. And so if someone is going to bring in bags, if there's been a timing, what did it look like six months ago, two months ago, one month ago, that can be helpful. Um, but I don't focus a lot on it. I really rely more on the history, um, okay. the verbal history. Do you give patients any form of a sense about just what we're talking about shedding you know what is the normal you know the textbooks say 50 to 200 hairs a day is normal and I find myself saying that a lot and then I think you know really what does that mean to a patient because unless they are counting and bagging it's a bit of a random number it is a random number it really is Um, there's no doubt about it that for some people normal shedding is 28 hairs a day For other people, it's 87. So there is a great variation. Um, People that wash their hair every day are going to shed less than Mm -hmm. people that wash their hair once a week. And so, you know, I try to get a sense of how often they're washing their hair. Um, Certainly, if they're not washing their hair often, then it may be normal to have 200, 300 hairs. Um, But the, the normal is probably around 50 or 60 hairs a day for the average human being. And so if someone really feels, I'm losing 150 hairs every day, every day, that's probably abnormal. Okay. You had started to touch on um, dermoscopy of the scalp and looking at the miniaturized hair. Do you have any clinical pearls for the residents to kind of say, you know, here's what a miniaturized hair looks like? Or are you looking for that follicular os? What what are you looking for when when you have your dermatoscope up, up on the scalp? Yeah, and so... It's a great question. When you place the dermatoscope on the scalp, you first try to find the thickest hair in the field. And once you find the thickest hair, you say, aha, I know what the thickest hair is now. And you ask yourself, are the hairs surrounding that area a lot thinner than that thick hair? Or are they kind of all the same? If you're convincing yourself, you know what, They, they all do not look like this thick hair then that's the suggestion that there's anisotrichosis or a variation in the size of hairs. Uh, And so it's really honing in on that thick hair and working from there to convince yourself. And I always encourage people to look at a lot of normal scalps. You know, if you're examining moles or examining skin checks, look at the hair of someone who doesn't feel they have hair loss. And you'll see that, okay, there's a little bit of variation normally in the human scalp, but it's not a lot. And then that'll really help you get a sense of, of what normal scalp looks like. That's a really good tip. And I I have to be honest, I don't really think I started looking at a lot of scalps with a dermatoscope until um, the CDA in Calgary. And there was a talk uh, by a a trichologist and I said, oh, I think I'm missing out. And I do think there's a lot of clinical keys that you can get just looking, you know, at the scalp with a dermatoscope. Not to sort of really move into a different topic, but, you know, I think the other concept that I find challenging to distinguish from androgenetic alopecia or telogenofluvium is that concept of generalized alopecia areata or like not the circles of loss. Um, In that Mm -hmm. case, would you expect to see some of the more classic dermatoscopic features of alopecia areata? Maybe you'd see some exclamation point hairs um, or, or dots or, or does that not play out in that condition? 
Unfortunately, oh, it doesn't of always. Course. And, you know, Alopecia areata incognito was going to be called Alopecia areata telogenica. <laughs> But someone decided they're going to call it alopecia areata incognito so that we could all be kind of confused and not really know what it is. But if it hadn't been called alopecia areata telogenica, we would have realized, wow, it really is like a telogen effluvium. And so you don't don't often see these exclamation mark hairs uh, and the black dots. You'll see yellow dots because the hairs are missing. You might see some kind of abnormal hairs. You will see... um, uh, many hairs that are uh, small, almost miniaturized looking, but instead of growing straight up mm-hmm. like a plant, they are kind of just snaky-like, and they kind of just sort of slither around the scalp, or maybe they try to grow northward, but they don't really make it, and that's the classic miniaturizing hair of alopecia areata. Okay. Um, but it's a tricky diagnosis, but, um, you know, alopecia areata incognito is really a type of telogen effluvium. Okay. I think maybe practically thinking about it like that does make a lot more sense to me. Um, moving back to the sort of more classic androgenetic alopecia, at what point, you know, I think the other thing a lot of females are saying, you know, do I have a hormone problem? Um, you know, what what triggers you to kind of think to yourself, maybe I should do some investigations? Um, or, or I guess, first of all, do you do regular investigations in everybody, like blood work wise? Um, and if not, what are the clinical features that may make you think, yeah, I should probably do that in this patient. Yeah. So anyone who walks in the door gets a CBCTSH ferritin. Okay. And so if you use the word hair in a sentence, you get a CBCTSH ferritin. <laughs> Fair enough. And now, the thing that you always have to be thinking about with androgenetic hair loss is, could this be polycystic ovarian syndrome? Mm-hmm. Could this be early menopause? Mm-hmm. And could this be a mimicker? And I think those three things are really, really helpful because um, we do miss a lot of these variations in PCOS mm-hmm. and we miss a lot of early menopause. Yeah. Um, so first, PCOS. You know, anytime there's irregular periods, um, I generally, uh, in a woman, let's say, under 40, uh, under 45, I'll generally order a workup, provided they're not on a birth control pill, mm-hmm. um, I'll order a day three to five uh, extended profile, 17-hydroxyprogesterone, LH, FSH, estradiol, testosterone, DHEAS, really trying to understand more about um, the possibility of, of PCOS. Of course, the history will be very important about irregular periods, if there's any uh, a- acne mm-hmm. or hirsutism, mm-hmm. but really having the radar on for possible PCOS. Um, and... You know, getting my colleagues, gynecologic colleagues or endocrinology on board to really help with some tricky diagnoses, but we have to be thinking about PCOS. And if there's any suggestion that it could be, I order a more extended workup. Okay. And then, you know, if there's androgenetic hair loss with acne, if there's androgenetic hair loss with high testosterone, um, if there's androgenetic hair loss with hirsutism, you know, any one of these features really would would cause me to want to order a more extended profile. Okay. Um, and then the other is the hormone profile of, of early menopause. And so I will always ask, not only are your periods regular, but are they different than a year ago? And if last year they used to be, you know, six days, seven days, and now they're three days but really light, well, I will order an FSH and I will order an estradiol. Um, 
And, you know, if there's any indication that uh, there may be poor sleep, there may be hot flashes or what weren't termed hot flashes, but the patient is wondering maybe these are, Mm -hmm. changes in mood that are sudden, um, you know, we do pick up a lot of early menopause that we wouldn't have otherwise. And the FSH and estradiol will will get them connected with the gynecologist for further evaluation. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so those are the kind of patients that you'd look at and say, I'm going to be a bit more extensive. I mean, I think it's rare that you'd probably see a female that has sort of that male pattern hair loss, but that in my head is always also a trigger to look more for, I guess that would be more of an an androgen secreting tumor or something like that. Have you seen much of that in your practice? I think it's pretty rare. Yeah, maybe two. Um, You know, when you have significant temporal thinning, you certainly have to be thinking about an ovarian or adrenal tumor. And that's ordering a testosterone, ordering a DHEAS. And if those are, you know, two or three times above normal, then you have to refer them on for that workup. But uh, there's so many tests to pick from. But the reality is, is that it's a testosterone Mm -hmm. and a DHEAS that really guide you in those decisions. Keep it simple. That's what I like to do. (laughs) What can I remember? And I have to be able to spell it out because our lab here doesn't have those. So you have to actually write the whole thing. It's not a click box. So, you know, it has to be, um, which I suspect is different across the country. Okay, so let's take a question from a dermatology resident right now. the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi Dermalogs, this is Danny Mansour, a PGY4 resident at the University of British Columbia. If you have a confirmed diagnosis of female pattern hair loss in a woman who is, say, 38 years old and of childbearing potential, how would you treat this? At what point do you offer spironolactone? And when do you talk about finasteride, if at all? What would you do first? Yeah, And so with the diagnosis of female pattern hair loss, there's really five treatments that I have, you know, in my toolbox. And that is minoxidil, Mm anti-androgens, low-level laser, Mm -hmm. PRP, and hair transplants. Okay. And so it's really a matter of, do I take any of these out of the toolbox to discuss or is it just not appropriate? Right. Um, And sometimes hair loss is too early for hair transplantation. Um, But because minoxidil is FDA approved for female pattern hair loss, and it is still the only treatment that is FDA approved and Health Canada approved, um, it really is the starting point for discussion in my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Minoxidil can be helpful for many patients it's not always easy to use. It can be, uh, you know, cumbersome. It can um, irritate some people. It can cause shedding. It can cause hair on the face. It can cause palpitations. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my mind, it's really the starting point of discussion to help people understand um, the history of it, the fact that it can help a significant proportion of patients, uh, good safety. It's not going to help everyone, and it's going to take six months to get there. Okay. But it's really clearing some of the myths up uh, and I'm often encountered with the common myth of I hear what you're saying I don't want to use that because I heard if I use it I have to use it forever and then I clarify that all the other treatments in that toolbox have the same rule right and so everything (laughs) we're going to talk about today is lifelong yeah Um, but I really think minoxidil is 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 a starting point Um, in a a woman of childbearing age um, you know, it, it can be used and then stopped at, at, at the time that um, she wishes to have a child. Um, I am a big fan 
of introducing treatments one at a time. Mm -hmm. It's not universal. There are physicians that will say, I'm going to start John Rogaine. Um, I am going, we're going to start spironolactone as well. And um, you can come every three months for PRP. Mm -hmm. My belief is that we have the time in a 38-year-old woman with relatively new onset androgenetic hair loss, we have the time to do things methodically, sequentially, mm -hmm. start minoxidil, see how she's doing in four to six months. If it's helping, great. We can decide if we want to add something like spironolactone or low-level laser or PRP. Um, so I don't generally start two treatments at once. Okay, and I think I, I think that's the general rule that I would also have because then I have a sense of, or I don't have a sense of which was most effective. And I think it's easier to have a sense of, you know, this is working or this is not working. Thinking about minoxidil specifically, do you um, tend to sort of look at the hair type and texture uh, of the patient? Do you have a preference for solution or foam? Um, and do you ever use oral minoxidil? Yeah. So the minoxidil foam tends to be quite well tolerated for many patients. And so we will start half a cap once a day. Okay. Um, I do encourage patients to let me know how they think things are going. Mm -hmm. And if they don't like it, then by all means, let's switch to the solution, mm -hmm. either a 5% solution or the old fashioned 2% minoxidil. Um, in women, 5% foam is probably fairly equivalent to 2% one twice a day. Mm -hmm. And so, and I do believe that the more and more we go on in time that, you know, the 2% is quite effective in women when used twice a day, one milliliter. Yeah. And so some patients will switch from the foam to the lotion and say, why didn't anybody mention this in the beginning? I love this. I can <laughs> place it right on the hair. I can place it in different parts. Why don't people mention this? So not everyone We'll really like the foam, but certainly because it doesn't have propylene glycol in it, it tends to be the go-to. Right. Um, so there's a lot of counseling that goes into minoxidil to help patients understand what to expect, how to apply it, how to make the parts in the hair. You know, it's, it's really important that patients understand what's in that toolbox because if they don't like those other things, they may say, you know what, I'm going to stick it out with this mm -hmm. minoxidil a little more. Yeah. But we do use a lot of oral minoxidil. Okay. There's no doubt about that. We're using more and more of that now. Um, women tolerate it less well than men. Okay. And so we have to go slower on the dose. In general, a couple of studies have suggested that 5% minoxidil topically is kind of equivalent to a half a tablet of oral minoxidil, where a full tablet is 2.5, so okay. 1.25 milligrams. Those are kind of equivalent. Um, so we do use a lot of oral minoxidil, and it, it's convenient, but we do get leg swelling. Yeah. We do get hair growth all over the face and body. <laughs> we do get, uh, you know, we do get reactions. Right. Those are less uh, well-accepted side effects, I would say, probably, you know, not to generalize, but in women in particular. Yeah. Um, when you use minoxidil, just like a point of clarification, do you have patients use it in the zones, you know, so it, more in the frontal mid scalp, or do you have them apply to the entire scalp typically? Definitely to the front and the mid scalp. Okay. And, you know, many patients want to apply it all over. And I say to patients that, you know, first start in the front and the mid scalp. If you're really tolerating it well with no headaches, dizziness, heart palpitations, 
I'm okay with you using a little bit more off-label because we're gaining so much confidence in the oral minoxidil that we know that if some gets absorbed, it's going to be okay because we're using oral minoxidil right. now more and more. Um, but I like patients to go slow because every year, a certain number of patients do end up in the emergency room very dizzy from excessive use of minoxidil. Right. And so, you know, we got to respect it. Absolutely. Now, thinking about spironolactone, um, you know, do you have, so I, I, you know, I presented as, okay, what's a 38-year-old woman? What about, you know, 17-year-old or a 14-year-old? Do you ever add spironolactone into those uh, younger women or do you tend to stick with the topical minoxidil? I get, I, most of my patients in that age group don't want to take anything systemic, but I guess what's your, what's your sort of spironolactone um, plan? Yeah. You know, my feeling in, in someone who is 14, 16, 18, 21 is that they may have an aggressive form of androgenetic hair loss that awaits. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to make sure that we don't have PCOS in this situation. Yeah. I want to make sure there's no other issue we're missing, congenital adrenal hyperplasia being, you know, the other one. Right. Um, but I'm more likely to actually be a little more aggressive. Um, okay. There have been studies documenting the safety of spironolactone in younger individuals. Um, And so we might go slow. We might start 50 milligrams a day uh, and move up to 100 milligrams slowly. Um, But, you know, I I will be a little bit more likely to be more aggressive because there, there can be a point at which the hair becomes difficult to camouflage and a point where the patient really feels that if I had have known more about my options a year or two ago, I might have done things differently. And it can move fast sometimes in younger women. Right. And so um, I'm, I may be more aggressive. That's a really good point. What about in younger women? Um, do you ever use, say, like cyproterone or try to um, leverage those antiandrogenic effects with, you know, that Diane 35? Or do you find spironolactone is more robust? Yeah, I, I definitely think that some of the other antiandrogens are great, um, but they have their concerns, Mm -hmm. uh, concerns about uh, pregnancy, um, and now ciprodorone acetate having concerns about meningioma risk. And so um, I've actually taken several patients off ciprodorone acetate who were previously on 25 or 50 milligrams 10 days of the month. Because of the meningioma risk Mm -hmm. that increases with dose, I don't think I have anybody on ciprodorone acetate anymore. I don't have anybody on flutamide anymore. But, you know, finasteride can be helpful. The issue is, is that it's certainly not approved, nor is spironolactone, but the concerns about pregnancy are much greater. It's category X Mm -hmm. in the old categorization Mm -hmm. versus D for spironolactone. There are some countries around the world where very few physicians would ever prescribe finasteride to a young woman. They just would never go there. But if a patient um, understands the risks, a patient is on an oral contraceptive, and I feel that, you know, the patient understands all of these options, then sometimes we do add finasteride to spironolactone and an oral contraceptive. Okay. As far as what oral contraceptive to use, I'm more likely to use a more neutral type of oral contraceptive as opposed to a strict anti-androgenic oral contraceptive. If I have the gynecologist on board that they feel 
that an oral contraceptive containing, you know, drosperidone or uh, ciproterone is really the way to go, then I'm all for it because it's it's a great idea. But I, I like to have some, you know, group discussion with, with my expert colleagues in terms of what really makes the most sense. But I do think in a young woman with PCOS or possible PCOS that uh, consideration for an oral contraceptive with an antiandrogen and topical minoxidil is, is really a great plan. Okay. To that end, thinking about using finasteride in, in women, do you find that it has the same um, benefit as in your male patients? Or I guess I've always been led to believe that, you know, it's not particularly effective in women, but maybe that's just a myth that um, I need to have clarified. It is true that one milligram doesn't appear to be effective. And so Dr. Vera Price from San Francisco and colleagues a number of years ago did a a wonderful placebo-controlled study looking at one milligram of finasteride versus placebo in women and showed that it doesn't seem to do anything. Okay. But a few other studies showed that the 2.5 or the 5 milligram dose really does help a significant proportion of premenopausal and postmenopausal women. And some studies have even suggested that upwards of 70% of postmenopausal women may have a benefit of finasteride. Mm. And so finasteride is very much, in, in my clinic, a, a good option for postmenopausal women with androgenetic hair loss. Right. Um, and so I do use a lot, and uh, it is quite effective. And um, we do have to watch for weight gain, mood changes, change in libido, but it tends to be fairly uncommon. Okay. And so it's a commonly prescribed treatment and well-tolerated. Now, thinking about using uh finasteride in, in male patients as well. Would, I suspect that would be a relatively common piece in your practice. I find sometimes when I'm discussing it, you know, men seem kind of gung-ho and then you mention the libido piece and they're like, ooh, uh, <laughs> wait a second. Um, how do you uh, gauge that or how do you discuss that, I guess, with patients and what in your experience do you think is is the true risk that they will have sexual dysfunction? I, I definitely think some of the early studies that led to finasteride approval suggesting that there's a slight risk above placebo is probably accurate. Mm -hmm. The literature is all over the place recently, with some studies suggesting there's probably no change above baseline, some suggesting that, you know, so it is challenging even for, you know, physicians to really get a sense of it. But I do think there is. I think it's low. I think the nocebo effect is huge. Mm -hmm. And so patients hear these side effects, they get terrified, and, um, you know, they're more likely to have these side effects. I have changed a lot in the last five years from viewing oral finasteride as a, as a first-line agent to viewing topical finasteride as a first-line agent. Okay. And so if I feel that, you know, We've we've got time to, to, to try topical finasteride, perhaps topical finasteride with minoxidil compounded into it. Um, let's see where this takes us. Depending on where it takes us, we might add some small doses of oral finasteride in the future, or we might add laser, or we might add PRP. Um, but I certainly use a lot more topical finasteride now if I feel that, um, you know, it's, it's it's an appropriate step. Um, it can be effective in many patients. The challenge is there's not one topical finasteride. So there's all these different vehicles that it comes in, and that makes it a challenge. Okay. 
but um, I certainly prescribe oral finasteride less as a first-line go-to agent. Okay, that's interesting. I wasn't even, uh, to be honest with you, aware that finasteride could be utilized topically. So there you go. I've already learned a few things, and that's <laughs> that's one of them for sure. Um, you, we've mentioned, you've touched a, a little bit on uh, low-level laser and PRP. Uh, where, where do those fit in your treatment ladder for most patients? I mean, I, of course, there'd be some places across the country where th- there may not have easy access to those modalities, but if they did, yeah. you know, where do you see them fitting? I really see them as second-tier or third-tier agents. I, I don't see them as first-line agents. Okay. Um, and so... You know, I really would like a patient to give consideration to uh, minoxidil. Whether or not they want to use it is different, but I'd like to have that discussion. I'd like them to think about it. I'd like them to think about where the antiandrogens fall in place. Um, and if they decide to use it, great. If they decide not to, then we can, you know, we can move on. Um, but I think there's there's second tier agents. There are some patients that will just feel that they don't want to use minoxidil. They've read all about it everywhere. They don't like it. They certainly don't want to use these antiandrogens. And so low level laser and PRP quickly come to the top of the list. And and some people love low level laser. They feel like it's great. Um, it's safe. It's uh, I see it on the airplane. Uh, you know the magazine in my front uh, <laughs> pocket. Um, other people will say, well, PRP sounds great. It's my blood. You know, so it's it's really understanding the risk tolerance of the patient, how they see things. But I really think the patient needs to understand one thing in particular, and that is if in six months the photo is not better, we have to agree that it's probably not working. Okay. And so those rules are important. And so I guess, that yeah, that's another really uh, salient point. In your practice, do you take sort of clinical photos to be objective, you know, so that patients can see if they do or do not have improvement. Sounds like you do. We take so many photos. (laughs) You know, I think photos are so important. Consider the patient that goes in for PRP and has a telogen effluvium from the PRP and they don't really know it because they wash their hair every day. Mm -hmm. And then three months later, they say, look at all the sprouts. I'm responding to the treatment. Um, so they say, this is great. I'm a responder to PRP. And then six months later or nine months later, you look at the photos and you see that it's worse. Right. Well, what happened? It was sprouting all these hairs. Well, that was the telogen effluvium coming back. And it ended up that you just got back to where you started. And that treatment didn't help you at all. Okay. And so we take a lot of photos. And photos are so important. Um, and I encourage patients to take photos. And, uh, you know, yeah. patients can, can take really, really great photos. Oh, I got to so. take these iPhones and Androids and all that. Gosh, it's like you've got like oh. a, you know, a, a SLR in your pocket. It's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of patients are ordering these uh, dermatoscopes online, these trichoscopic devices and you know they send in dozens upon dozens of these pictures and really all that i want to see is the bird's eye view of the part down the middle right. and that's all i want to see that's the new and bringing say, in their bags of hair right you know like <laughs> yeah, that's right trichoscopic that's right. Uh, digital images yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, listen, uh, before we move over to, to frontal fibrosing alopecia, I just wanted to quickly touch on hair transplant, which I suspect could be a whole episode in and of itself. But um, the biggest question for me is, is there a sweet spot for when you could, you know, when you ideally want to do transplantation or offer it? Or like, you know, is there is there a point of no return where you're like, ah, oh, it's going to be way too late and look crazy? Like, what, do you have a preferred time where patients would actually go through that? In men... 
Often hair transplantation can be a very good option after the age of 25, if we're talking about the front and the mid scalp, mm-hmm. and then after 35 for the crown. Okay. Um, if a patient is a Hamilton Norwood 6 or 7, um, you really need an experienced surgeon to know how to move a limited number of hairs into that large area of hair loss to make it look good. Otherwise, it just looks unnatural. Um, But there are these cutoffs. If you transplant too early and a person loses significant hair afterwards, then you just have this transplanted hair sitting all by itself in a bald scalp. If you transplant the crown too early, you have hair in the middle and nothing around the outside as the balding expands. And so for men, hair transplant can be a great option with with the right surgeon. Right. And, you know, as long as there's places to put the hair, meaning that's not so thick that it really makes no sense to move hair into there, it can be a good idea. Right. For women, it's a little different. For, for female pattern hair loss, um, it, the best type of hair to transplant is the so-called Olsen pattern or the Christmas tree pattern where you have a defined area where you're going to put hairs. Mm -hmm. If you have diffuse hair loss, it doesn't really respond very well to hair transplantation usually. And so the Olsen pattern is generally quite good provided the hair at the back is not undergoing miniaturization. Right. Okay. So that, yeah, so it sounds like you kind of have to just uh, weigh the pros and cons really carefully with transplantation. Okay. You sure do. All right. Yeah. So that's, that's fantastic. Now, again, I, there's probably a million other questions that are coming to my mind, but I do want to take some time to, to flip and talk a little bit about uh, frontal fibrosing alopecia. And at the beginning, you know, you said this and, and I've really noticed it. It seems like I'm seeing it all the time. And do you think that it's more common now or there's some like environmental trigger or do you think that we're just looking for it and and noticing it i like it just it seems like every day i'm seeing a female and and looking for something else and going oh that's a little bit (laughs) now i don't always mention it but um yeah it seems so common what are your thoughts i think it is i think it absolutely is increasing you know dermatologists are by nature you know very observant individuals and when you look at the the history of the case report right back to the 1800s you know dermatologists are always reporting the the most minuscule thing you know <laughs> this is a new variant of lichen planus this is a new variant of pityriasis rosea you know we love to find new variations and we didn't really report this until 1994. Right. And so I do think it is increasing and I do think it is real as a new entity. Um, there probably is an environmental uh, factor or factors that are responsible. But as we've learned from some good genetic studies from the UK, some women probably have a genetic predisposition. Okay. And what all this means, we don't know, but you might have a predisposition. Okay. Let's actually take another question from one of the residents right now. Hi, Dermalogs. It's Dr. Muntianu, a resident at McGill University. Here's my question for Dr. Donovan. When you're seeing perifollicular erythema and scaling on the frontal scalp, is that considered to be like in plano pilaris until proven otherwise, or do you have other things that would pop up on your differential in that type of pattern? It's certainly important to consider there can be some 
perifollicular light scale, even in some forms of dandruff and psoriasis. Mm -hmm. It can fool you. If you look, you know, look at a lot of scalps, you'll see that. There's one feature that's really, really important in FFA and lichen plano pilaris, and that is destruction. Okay. And so when you see hairs that are no longer in their bundles of two or bundles of three, they're just one hair all by itself, um, then that's really, really significant. And in FFA in particular, the little thin vellus hairs disappear. And so if you're looking at the scalp and you can't see any of these short hairs, that's highly suggestive that you've lost vellus hairs and this may be FFA. Okay. I find too that sometimes, and it, these tend to be in the more established women, you, you see that uh, their frontal scalp, you know, you see the shiny sort of like band and then their hair starts. And, and sometimes mm-hmm. I don't even see the perifollicular erythema anymore. I assume it probably existed you know, years ago, is that, that's kind of a burned out appearance, I'm assuming at that point? It's a great question. And I think that um, there may be some stages which are quite inflammatory and clinically inflammatory. I'm always careful about saying it's burnt out because some of these women, it doesn't look very red anymore. But one year later, they've lost more hair. Right. And so FFA can become somewhat, you know, burnt out looking, when in fact it's not. Okay. The the front tends to be more red and scaly. The sides around the ears is often not. It's often alopecia areata looking. Mm-hmm. And so there are some patients that have kind of subclinical looking FFA. And if you're too quick to call it burnt out, you'll find in a year that the patient's lost more hair. So you get to compare your photos. So you, right. you'd have that objective. <laughs> I just go, I don't remember what it looked like a year ago. Yeah. Um, what do you think are the most um, helpful symptoms that a patient will um, elicit that make you think about like early scarring alopecia, for example? You know, is it is it pain? Is it burning? Is it itch? Is it all of the above? Yeah, so certainly f- um, any patient with itching or burning or and pain, if they have all three of those... They're going to get a biopsy no matter what. No matter what right. you tell me, if you have itching, burning, pain, you get a biopsy. Okay. Um, FFA is a lot quieter than LPP, classic right. LPP. And so many patients with FFA just find that they're kind of just noticing that their hairline is moving back, um, particularly the sideburn areas where the, you know, the glass rim of the glasses goes over top. Right. If patients start mentioning, you know, there used to be hair that my glasses had to go through and that's not there anymore. That's concerning, but it can be quite quiet. And so the symptoms itself doesn't, doesn't tip me off. Um, the band appearance that you've mentioned does patients who remark that the veins are just more visible patients who remark that my face is so much bumpier. I feel like I need to have, you know, a cosmetic treatment to flatten out these bumps. I don't know what these bumps are. Uh, these are facial papules sometimes of FFA. Right. But the most important feature is the eyebrow, eyelash, body hair loss. Absolutely. And yeah. so when you yeah. have that kind of history, um, you know, we don't chalk it up to just age-related loss of hair on the arms and legs. It, it really has to give consideration that this could be FFA. And I guess that's a really good point, especially for the residents to say, you know, whenever you're looking, whenever you're talking about hair, seeing a patient with hair, you know, don't forget the other hair bearing sites to ask about those specifically, because I think, you know, a lot of times you may forget or, or you don't really notice the eyebrows or you think, oh, they, but you know, so many people these days are putting like 
crazy makeup and you can't really tell or they have thick hair or bushy eyebrows but it's less for them so yeah really um that's a really good reminder yeah just speaking about biopsies i think sometimes the challenge is the biopsy interpretation and so do you um you know, because I think there's places where dermatopathologists might be a lot more used to looking at hair biopsies. Do you tend to try to send, you know, the the two uh, biopsies as much as possible? Or do you kind of get back that microscopic and try to interpret yourself? You know, I I think that there may be a number of people across the country that don't have someone that's going to be readily able to um, as easily yeah. give a give a slam dunk diagnosis on their hair. So do you have any tips around that path piece? Yeah. And so I think the first thing is to ask yourself, does it really seem that the clinical picture and the trichoscopy is good enough? 10 years yeah. ago, 15 years ago, it used to be that if you have scarring alopecia, you need a biopsy. Right. Those rules don't apply anymore. And so if the clinical picture and the trichoscopy really seems that this is FFA or this is LPP or this is the compounding of folliculitis decalvans, then, you know, it's acceptable not to biopsy. But when I biopsy, I really try to give the pathologist as much information. Okay. And the thing I really want to know if, if the biopsy is coming from or going to someone who doesn't read hair a lot is please tell me about the sebaceous glands. You know, okay. are the sebaceous glands lost or are the sebaceous glands actually increased? Right. And so if the pathologist says, you know what, in these follicular units, the sebaceous glands are dramatically reduced, um, then that's really suggestive of a scarring alopecia. Right. And some pathologists will overcall the um, inflammation in the infundibulum and the isthmus. Right. They will overcall the um, perifollicular fibrosis or the, the, the fibrosis that um, uh, the fibroplasia that exists. Um, that can be seen in androgenetic alopecia, so we got to be careful. But it's the loss of sebaceous glands and the lichenoid change. If we can catch those necrotic keratinocytes and loss of sebaceous glands, then that pathologist has helped me tremendously. And so right. I'll ask them right out in two questions. <laughs> Tell me about lichenoid change. Tell me about sebaceous glands. And it's a really great dialogue to have. Yeah, no, that that's actually great. And that is a very practical tip because those features would be much easier, even if someone's not used to handling hair, to be yeah. able to, to comment on. So thinking, you know, maybe about FFA and then we could flip to LPP, but you know, what is your, what's your preferred treatment, you know, uh, ladder? I guess um, I find myself with people saying, you know, we could try this, we could try this. And, and some of them will go, oh, I don't really want to take a pill or, oh, if it has it going to work. And, um, you know, so what do you, how do you generally approach treatment for, for FFA? Yeah. And so, you know, with clinicians, I'll, I'll refer to it as first line, second line, third line. With my patients, I'll refer to it as the gold medal, silver medal, and bronze medal. Nice. And the, the gold medal treatments are finasteride, dutasteride, isotretinoin, steroid injections. Okay. And so a plan that has some word finasteride or dutasteride is is, is probably a solid plan, whether it's topical or oral. Uh, the best evidence is for the oral dutasteride in the present day. Um, but the, but a close runner-up, and in some studies even better than dutasteride, is isotretinoin or acetretin. Okay. And so these 
are the number one treatments for FFA. So as much as possible, if we can introduce this to a plan, it, it, it's probably a solid plan. Um, steroid injections are something that very few dermatologists realize that the literature supports that they work. Okay. Uh, the common feeling amongst clinicians is that I don't think these do anything. Um, when you look at the studies, the studies suggest that they do something good for maybe 80% or 90% of patients. Hmm. Um, and so often I will start uh, dutasteride three times a week. If they tolerate it after a month, I'll go up to daily. Um, I may start the patient off slowly with isotretinoin um, twice a week just to get into it so they feel comfortable that, you know, we get over the dry lip stage. We'll see if even twice a week causes dry lips and we might move up three times, okay. four times, five times, six times. But I start slow. So we get into it. We get a comfort with it. The patient tolerates it. Um, if steroid injections is possible, we might do some steroid injections and I might have them use pomecrolimus cream on the frontal scalp at home. And that is my sort of starting point for many patients with FFA. Do you ever find patients that are on a systemic retinoid? Uh, I mean, I, I guess I hear it more with acetretin, but with isotretinoin complaining of frontal scalp hair loss, um, and, and does that, like, how does that, how do we reconcile that with it being a treatment for FFA? Yeah. Or can we? <laughs> you know, the, the type of hair loss that isotretinoin and acetretin often cause in a small number of patients is more of a telogen yeah. effluvium with bitemporal hair loss and more diffuse type thinning. Okay. Um, we don't have any good evidence that it would cause a, a scarring pattern or an FFA right. type pattern. Um, you know, many astute patients will say that if acetretin and, and isotretinoin are supposed to affect the oil glands, the sebaceous glands, and shrink them, isn't this a bad thing in scarring alopecia? Aren't, aren't the losses of <laughs> And that's a very astute point. <laughs> that, and the answer is, is, I don't know how to answer that, but it, the answer <laughs> is no. It doesn't seem to work that way. Uh, but um, but it doesn't seem to cause frontal scarring alopecia. Okay. Right, right. I just, I guess I I wondered if patients ever came in because, you know, the, the main, I would say the number one reason that patients stop acetretin in my practice is because they have found some loss in the frontal scalp in particular, not scarring, obviously, but I just wondered if it was something that came up, but it sounds like not, not that often. Yeah, not that often. Okay. Um, so, and then flipping, because, you know, I, I sometimes I think in my head, I even get FFA and LPP confused, and I've been somewhat using them interchangeably, um, even in our discussion. So apologies for those people listening, going, what's she talking about? But uh, for that LPP, um, more that perifollicular erythema, itchy, you know, how, what's your treatment ladder for that um, presentation? Yeah, so with classic LPP, um, often it'll be starting with a topical steroid like clobetazole. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes even daily to begin with, um, the use of um, either hydroxychloroquine or doxycycline as one of those first-line agents um, for, uh, you know, more significant LPP in the scalp, more than just a patch or two. Um, so topical steroids, um, steroid injections, doxycycline or hydroxychloroquine. And so that's a very solid starting point. And then we may branch from there. We may go on to um, add um, um, tacrolimus. We may go on to add low-dose naltrexone. We may go on to add uh, mycophenolate mofetil, but that would be a starting point. Okay. 
And one of the residents actually said, you know, straight up, just easy question. Do you think doxycycline or Plaquenil is more effective as a first line treatment? Yeah. Does it matter, I guess? Does does a different patient respond differently? They certainly do. Um, The thing about doxycycline is often the response is much, much quicker. And so, you know, that's very satisfying when we start something and the patient says, this is great. Whereas with LPP, you know, a patient who starts hydroxychloroquine may not see benefits for four months, even six to nine months in a small proportion. And in some of those patients, we've long given up, you know, the patients that were going to respond at month seven. Um, But they're probably fairly equivalent based on all the data that we have so far, which, which isn't a lot, but probably pretty similar. Okay. Okay. That's great. Now, Thank you so much for reviewing those two really important topics. I want to ask one more uh, sort of bonus question, if if I may. Um, and this is, this is you kind of mentioned low-dose naltrexone, a couple of things. This is what brought this to my mind. The 85-year-old female, almost always female, with just a generalized red scalp, no hair loss, no clear trichoscopic changes, itchy, 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 cannot stop scratching like they just these people come in and I've tried I try every topical and I try biopsy and, and nothing and what do you make of that is that some phenomenon of I don't know is there like itchy red scalp of elderly ladies or you know what is am I just do I am I missing something yeah it's a, it's a it's actually a common scenario that is encountered and some of these patients may actually have more than one condition Okay. Um, we certainly have to think about seborrheic dermatitis. Yes. Um, and so the use of an anti-seborrheic shampoo will be helpful. Um, but for many of these patients, sort of getting rid of some of these ingredients that irritate the scalp can be really helpful. And nowadays, there's about four or five hypoallergenic shampoos on the market, devoid of fragrance, devoid of cocamidopropyl betaine, devoid mm-hmm. of some of these other preservatives. And so I will often use them, um, you know, to help with this itchy red scalp, you know, phenomenon. Um, a proportion of those individuals will respond to periodic use of beta-methasone uh, beta valerate lotion. Okay. And so sometimes it will bring that on. Um, and because of the safety of beta-methasone over clobetazole, I'm, I'm much more apt to try to start with um, uh, beta-methasone valerate than clobetazole. Okay. And so um, a hypoallergenic shampoo with um, beta-methasone valerate may be a very helpful way to go. Um, but sometimes these, these are challenging, and sometimes doing less uh, is actually more helpful in, in situations like that. And sometimes a rebiopsy down the road does catch the the scarring alopecia that just didn't show up on the last two biopsies. Um, yeah. But the okay. itchy red scalp is common. Yeah, it's like the, you know, it's like the itchy red bumps or like the, the you just can't quite prove Grover's in some of the older gentlemen. I just, it's like this thing. Anyway, so, okay, well, I'm glad to, to hear that it's not just me. Um, and and I want to, uh, I want to be cognizant of your time. Thank you so much for joining me and talking about this tiny piece of the hair topic. I, I we could probably do an entire series on hair. Um, but thank you so much uh, for those wonderful clinical tips, um, practical tips. Thank you for joining me. Season three, Dermalogs, episode one. You know, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Carrie. It's my pleasure. Thanks again. Great.
Thank you. Uh, And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Thanks for joining us. Till next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. Thank you.